This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is an extensively researched psychotherapy method that can be performed via telehealth or in person. EMDR is used to accelerate the resolution of trauma in fewer sessions than traditional psychotherapy. EMDR does not require talking about details, but rather mental processing of events. This can be especially helpful for issues that bring up guilt, shame, or general feelings of discomfort we cannot pinpoint. Valeria interviews Mary Moore. She is a licensed professional counselor associate and the clinical director of Lake Austin Psychotherapy, based in Austin, Texas. Mary is an EMDR-trained clinician, specializing in PTSD, trauma, anxiety, depression, infertility, and pregnancy loss, and was trained by the Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia in prolonged grief disorder therapy. Moore is a member of the Professional Task Force for the American Counseling Association and an associate member of EMDRIA, the EMDR International Association, the organization for clinicians and researchers that upholds the highest standard of clinical use for EMDR. She lectures nationally and has written on a variety of mental health topics for outlets including the New York Times, Glamour, Mary Claire, and the Huffington Post. Meet Mary at lakeaustinpsychotherapy.com. Here's the interview with Mary Moore. In your own words, who am I speaking with today? <laughs> I'm Mary Moore, and I'm a licensed professional counselor associate in Austin, Texas, and I'm the clinical director of Lake Austin Psychotherapy. But before I was a counselor, I was a magazine writer and editor. I worked in New York for a variety of fashion magazines, Glamour and Mary Claire, Cosmo, and uh, I, I never really thought of my job as therapeutic by any stretch. Uh, but in my case, I landed in the features department and I had the happy accident of handling the regular assignment of uh, the first-person narratives. So essentially, I wrote and reported personal stories, whether someone had overcome an obstacle or thrived in a difficult journey. It was my job to gain their trust for them to tell their story to the magazine and in turn, you know, for an audience of millions. And I took that responsibility very seriously. And while not by design, it ended up being a transformative experience for the participants because they would tell their story with this whole new empowered perspective. 
to be able to control the narrative and have the final say, it ended up being this final draft, just therapeutically packaged and in, in a lot of ways repackaged within them. And, you know, that's really what therapy is. It's, it's a more subjective view of your story. So that's what was always very satisfying to be a part of that. But then, you know, the next issue of the magazine would come up and we'd have to go to the next story. And while that was always a very enriching part of my work, I never thought that thread would lead me to the work I do today, but I'm really grateful it did. What is life to you? I think life is a story. Not unlike those narratives in the magazine, uh, more specifically, I think it's the lens of our perspective because in trauma, you know, there's big T trauma and little t trauma. It, it's subjective. It's, it's a lens. It's, it's the way we, we retell the experience or we process it or synthesize it. And to me, it, it's the one thing that endures that impact we had or the lessons we impart, you know, those impressions, you know, our story when well-lived or more importantly, well-told or in the case of therapy, retold is what is internal and it's what I consider life. What do you think is the opposite of life? I think disconnection is the opposite of life. Numbing on social media or it could be excess drinking, bad relationships, avoidance. It's the opposite of that connection, I think, that really makes life dynamic. And it's, epi it's epidemic. We document sometimes more than we live. It, it's it's kind of like what Locke said about, you know, the tree falling in the forest. You know, it's almost a removal from actual living. So, you know, if brunch is consumed and it's not posted on Instagram, is it enjoyed? Um, you know, It's really about living in the moment rather than curating it. And that means letting go of control. And in the case of therapy, we learn it's a dangerous place for a lot of people. And that's where some of the trauma work comes in. What is the purpose of the human experience? To move with intention and to have a meaningful impact on others. And in return, be willing to receive that same influence. You know, and to do that, you have to be connected uh, as a human being to be able to read others or to read yourself, to know what we need and what we need to supply to others. I think that's really what makes the human experience rich and purposeful. At this time, what is the purpose of your life? Aside from being a good parent, my purpose in life is to help others braid together new narratives, to stand with them while they excavate very painful parts of their lives and process them just to bear witness while they make meaning, their meaning, more important than mine or anyone else's. You know, I take this very seriously and I, I feel grateful to do it every day. You know, unlike in magazines, I get to see these new stories as a, you know, as a therapist, these new stories continue to live in my clients day in and day out. You know, they, they ask for that raise, they, you know, seek relationships they deserve, you know, and as a therapist, that's the most meaningful thing to me. What are some of the greatest misconceptions about happiness, in your opinion? I think one of the greatest misconceptions about happiness is that it's an imperative 
um, a relentless pursuit. You must achieve. I mean, it's even in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> um, but I think real independence is the freedom from the notion that happiness or constant bliss is, is the end goal. You, you can't scale the heights of happiness without knowing the depths of sadness. And you can't know closeness without loss. Or even the beauty of grief, if you didn't get to honor the love that was there. Now, happiness is great, but it's, it's just one of the human experiences that we have. And happiness can only exist in relation to those other experiences. What do you love most about being in a human body? <laughs> what I like most about being in the human body is that it reminds us every day that we're fleeting. You know, as we physically decline or we get an injury, we're most aware that it's, this is precious and it's temporary. You, the body's a vessel that's ephemeral, but it's a vehicle to construct experiences that can achieve permanency long after our physicality is gone. What is healing to you? What's healing to me is to see others heal. Uh, clients are often seekers and they have a humility about them. They want to be better. They want to do better. They want to figure themselves out. They dare to look. That willingness to me is reparative. I, I'm inspired and renewed by that courage of my clients every day. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? To risk deep connection with others is as free as you can be. I, we've all had experience, like say with a friend, you know, or a partner in conversation where you feel that kind of magic happen between the two of you. This is where intimacy lives. If there's a, there was a New York Times article in that, or an essay in modern, the modern love section by Mandy Lynn Catrone called to fall in love, do this. And it was 36 questions that was based on a study by psychologist Arthur Aaron. And they were a series of probing questions that fostered intimacy. And what it was doing, it was just tapping into this deep rhythm found and reveal. You know, to be able to come is authentically and transparently it dare to let others see it. You know, that's why they call it falling in love. It's a free fall. You know, to be free is to be willing to practice the ultimate rewarding trust exercise. And the stakes are huge, but so is the win. At this time, what is the world's greatest need? And also, do you have a vision for a new reality? I think the world's greatest need is to reconnect with ourselves. We're a society that numbs. You know, we all do it. We pick up our phone in a moment of discomfort or just social awkwardness. And that ability to trust in our internal resources, the quiet of the self, is invaluable and underutilized. We're an externalized society. We look for external gratifications, validation, notifications. And we're a lonely society. We, you know, to be able to trust we can be seen by others is first achieved by sitting with and seeing ourselves. I, I think the lack of that is at the core of much of the isolation and despair in the world today. What is your understanding and idea of love? 
you know, to prioritize what you can give up yourself without any expectation of reciprocation or even with the knowledge you may suffer. You know, my mother died a few years ago of Parkinson's. And while I was dedicated to her care, there was some part of me that really wanted to retreat, you know, as if I could protect myself from the inevitable. But caring for her and holding her close in those last months, it sort of felt like flying too close to the sun. So to me, love is daring to lose and then expecting nothing in return, even possibly risking incredible heartbreak. And while losing my mother was the saddest thing I ever felt, I also know it was the bravest I had ever been. What is inner peace to you? To not allow external to affect the internal. It's possibly the one thing we could control is that internal order. You know, for my clients that suffer from anxiety, they have two placeholders or each foot in two worlds that are not of the now. So the immutable past and the unpredictable future. But there really is only the now. We're only invited to it. So beyond our responsible preparation, we only have to worry about what is in front of us. And I think inner peace really is to decide, are we the world or are we the weather? What? Where and who is God to you? I'm not a religious person, but I welcome when my clients have a religious faith. It's just another resource. It can be, you know, that can be a, defined as a traditional omnipotent being or just the beauty of living in the world. I think God has different meanings for a lot of different people, but whatever that version is, faith and support are just more resources for life. What is to be spiritual? And what is spirituality? I think spirituality is living intentionally and with the authentic self. You know, I had a client who growing up, she was a gymnast. Uh, and in order to execute the land successfully, she had to ignore common sense, namely throwing one's feet over one's head. <laughs> and, and eventually she lost touch with that voice that helped her hear or inflict concerns in her day-to-day life. It, it was like the real-life twisties. That's a term used by gymnasts when in the air they lose a sense of space and dimension. We can experience the same thing in our sense of balance, not on the beam, but in our lives. Spirituality, I think, is first a connection to oneself and then to something greater. How do you define success? What is to be successful to you? I think success or the way um, I would see it defined, is a sense of satisfaction on our own terms. For me, I, I consider myself an ambitious person, but I'm not a competitive person. There's always someone ahead of you and always someone behind you. You know, someone might inspire me, but I think it's unwise to measure success against others. You know, you lose focus on your own journey. But I think the most important part of success is resilience. It's like that Rocky speech. Uh, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. So long as you can still reach for joy, even after getting punched in the gut, you know, as long as you're still reaching, I think that's success. So why did you choose to do what you do? My decision to become a therapist 
was really a convergence of both personal and career events. So like I mentioned, I was a magazine editor uh, and writer for a long time. But then my mother became ill for an extended period and, and died. In fact, the, the last thing I wrote for a magazine was an essay about her life. It was published a week before she died, and I read it to her, and then she passed away the next day. So words and the ability to process and synthesize as a writer have always been a very powerful tool for me personally. Yeah. And I've never been a writer who's suffered from block. It's just one of the most natural, enjoyable things to me. But after my mother's death, the words left me. You know, it's understandable now. I, I think grief took up a lot of the bandwidth for my creativity at the time. So I decided to rethink my career. And plus, the publishing industry had changed dramatically at that point. Um, a therapist who was a former television writer pointed out how the two professional worlds of writer and counselor were really aligned. Both were about weaving together these new stories and maybe I should consider becoming a therapist. And soon my narrative leanings started making complete sense. You know, everything came together. Why I like to do what I did before, um, how I could take it to a new career. And then it's all unfolded just as I hoped. And I love seeing clients create new storylines in their own lives. And I get to co-edit those every day now. It's, and, you know, not long after I became a therapist, my ability and desire to write returned. I think being inspired by my clients helped that process for me personally. To see what human beings are capable of is amazing. And, and they helped heal me too. How did you become a writer? I became a writer, I think, because I was the youngest of six. And when you're the youngest of six, you really don't get a word in edgewise. I don't know that I intentionally chose it for that reason, but there was some power in having the final say. Like, I could write an essay about my childhood, and mine was the one on record, right? Plus, you know, I was a voracious reader of magazines as a child. It, they were a window into a life outside of small te the small Texas town where I grew up. Um, there was no Instagram, no cable. Those pages were the only transport I had to a life less ordinary, um, and those glossy magazines became a place I could go and eventually, literally, uh, would go to construct a new life. My first plane ride uh, was to move to New York City. It, I was like a, a Texas bred Borat. <laughs> everything, I mean, everything worked out and I became acclimated. And I built a successful career while managing not to have my organs harvested. Um, but uh, I feel the same excitement you know, whenever I hear clients creating their own version of their new life and I get to watch it unfold. It's like when you write and construct that perfect ending, it, it, it gives you chills. It's the sense of wholeness and completion. You can't beat it. What was the inspiration, intention and purpose of writing your book? No current book to promote. Talk to me for a moment about the services you offer. One of the things I specialize in is EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's very helpful with trauma and PTSD, but it also has positive outcomes with anxiety, depression, OCD, and other disruptive experiences. So 
EMDR to many is this mysterious, powerful clinical tool. Um, I, I invite people to visit uh, mdria.org, E-M-D-R-I-A, for more information. E- you know, EMDR is evidence-based, which is the only type of therapy I do. Essentially, what it does is it allows the brain to cultivate its own healing process through bilateral stimulation. And I always describe it to my clients, you know, it's sort of like if, when you look at symptoms, think of them as the pucker, like if you had a leak in the ceiling, you'd see the puckering on the ceiling, right? Like the symptoms. You can paint over that that puckering, but really to make sure that it doesn't occur again, you have to go back up in the pipe and figure out where the source is. And that's what I think of as EMDR, going back up in those memory channels and really releasing that frozen trauma. One thing I like is EMDR is fast and efficient and it gets clients out of duress. That way we can start the work of making meaning of what's left and move forward. And and to me, it works really well with collaborative narrative angles. So once we have these process traumatic events, it's we clear the slate for this new adaptive information. Now that they're not living in reactiveness. I also specialize in prolonged grief disorder therapy. I was trained by the Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia. Um, And before it was called complicated grief, but now it's referred to as prolonged grief disorder. Um, It's listed in the DSM. You know, and there's been some controversy about about, labeling grief disorder. To be clear, grief is not maladaptive. You know, integrative grief uh, continues Integrated grief continues functionally throughout our lives, you know, if we love someone. But the difference with prolonged grief disorder is that the grief is disruptive over long periods of time. There's rumination and indictment. It closes down a life. Um, So grief on its own is not maladaptive. There's no time frame where you're wrong to be sad. But when we can identify or have appropriate screeners, we can give appropriate clinical care. And to, like, say, for example, differentiate from depression. So in depression, someone may not care at all. There's, you know, this lack of engagement. Prolonged grief disorder, they care very much to the point of excessive focus or adamant denial. Um, another thing within the grief realm that I offer is forensic medical review in cases where a loved one has unanswered questions about the death. So, you know, when you're grieving, you do not have the bandwidth to chase down medical records or may not even have an accurate recollection of traumatic events of the death or what unfolded at the hospital. Trauma by its nature is disjointed. So to distract from the pain of this loved one not being there, you know, our brain will give us an activity. It it plays Monday morning quarterback with death. You You know, with COVID, we saw this a lot, not just with the illness, but with other situations where access was limited to care in the patients or the loved ones couldn't be with them. So questions went unanswered. And when we don't have information and are not debriefed about a situation, the grief-stricken brain can fill it in and fill in those gaps with really bad intel. And having the facts reviewed by an expert and delivered in a compassionate but simple and meaningful way gets the narrative back on track. And along with these specializations, I treat you know, generalized anxiety and depression. I also address reproductive issues and pregnancy loss. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? You can find more information about my work at lakeaustinpsychotherapy.com. 
I lecture around the country and I continue to see clients via Zoom across Texas. We're almost at the end of our conversation and I have two final questions for you. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? No, I tend to live intentionally and I really have few regrets. One of the reasons perhaps is I lost my father when I was 13 to cancer. And while I not, you know, would not wish that on anyone, I think it really gave me a unique perspective. You know, I, I had a sobriety about life uh, very early on. And I also think in, incredible resilience instilled, I mean, even as a young teenager. And I doubt it was noticeable on the surface, uh, but I did understand the depths of loss very early on. I didn't take certain things for granted. And I took big but healthy chances because in many ways the loss removed fear. Like if I could survive this, I could survive anything. What could New York throw it at me? At the right me? Let me get on a plane and find out. Um, so I feel pretty good about the decisions I've made, particularly the one to become a therapist. I feel like a lot of my life events, you know, even the painful ones when I reflect, uh, and that seemed at the time to make no sense at all, uh, have merged beautifully into one purpose for me. And I'll do this work for as long as I'm allowed. What are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Three things I know for sure. What I know for sure in this moment is the moment. It's just the here and now, like my words going out to the ether and hitting your ears. That's it. That's where we are. Like with my clients who manage anxiety, you know, I tell them we don't have to RSVP to a problem you know, early that we don't have to deal with just yet. It's holding the energy of activation with no place for it to go. So really there's liberation in the moment. Um, I also know that for sure, that people are really beautiful. I love how different people are and the unique way they carry experiences. To me, it's like individual works of art. You know, I remember living in New York. I used to sit in the back of cabs on the way home from work, and I loved watching people very closely as they walked around and just marvel at their uniqueness and how they carry themselves just in that untouched moment. You know, now I observe others, obviously with their permission, <laughs> um, as a clinician. And I still have that same awe for how we move in the world. Another thing I, I know for sure is the power of resilience. The ability to get up or to leave it behind, whatever that may be, is one of the most significant things we can do for ourselves. I, I get to see people do this every day. I watch them stand apart from old experiences, indictments or ideas, and transform before my very eyes. It's this beautiful private privilege. And clients, they hand you their trust, their lives, their story, and you're allowed to hold it like it's this beautiful hummingbird floating in the now. It's magic, really. Thank you so much for your presence, for sharing your wisdom and doing what you do. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Mary Moore and her work, please visit lakeaustinpsychotherapy.com.
learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.